0: I'm Kerry, And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover. This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover. We find book lovers everywhere, and talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides eat soup. It's soup weather, Carrie. Last night I had lasagna soup and you had stuffed pepper soup. Give me some bread for dunking and a spoon, and I'm happy. <laughs> and we
1: may be a little biased in thinking that reading people are the coolest people.
0: Our guest this week, Jeremy Hance, writes about three topics in his most recent book that we are always drawn to, mental health, travel, and animals. Baggage, Confessions of a Globe-Trotting Hypochondriac, is a memoir that uses humor to help readers understand what life is like for someone who has a mental health issue like obsessive-compulsive disorder. In Jeremy's case, his anxiety is always worse when he travels. While traveling to all corners of the globe is one of the best parts of his life as an environmental writer and is necessary for the work he does, travel is also fraught with rumination and fear.
1: Jeremy is currently a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT and has spent many years as a columnist for the environmental website Manga Bay. But first, I am officially COVID boosted and my youngest is... Fully vaccinated now, so
0: ah, <sighs> so you feel complete relief? Well, I
1: I don't know about complete relief, but you feel relief. I feel relief, and you also feel like
0: crap because you just had your. Well,
1: uh, yeah, and it always makes me wonder. I mean, I don't know that anybody knows this. I've always thought, like, ooh, if my body reacts this way to the the vaccine, you know, would my body be like ah to the actual virus? So I don't know. I've wondered that, but I'm not a scientist. So I don't know. But yeah. because I know that I don't know, then I trust the immunologists to tell me. I don't do my toilet research on Google to find out information. So
0: we have a recording coming up, Carrie, that has nothing to do with our show.
1: That's right. We're going to join Tabby on the Modern
0: Life podcast to talk about the Princess Bride. We've been on her podcast one other time, and what she likes to do is uh, read a specific book and then watch the movie and then talk about it. And we were on her show over a year ago, a year and a half ago. And in that instance, we talked about The Age of Innocence by Edith Wharton. This time, we're going to talk about The Princess Bride by William Goldman and watch the movie. It's a little different because for us, with the last time, neither one of us had read the book or seen the movie. And this time, both of us have seen the movie many, many, many times. But the book was different, for sure. Yeah, the book is a little bit different. I like that you get backstories on some of the favorite characters, like Anigo Montoya and Fezzik. What I'm not so sure about is there's sort of like this meta thing going on. <laughs> I don't know how to describe it even. It's like uh, a book within a book, and I'm not sure about that, but we'll have to talk about that with uh, Tabby. Yeah. So what's your favorite character from Princess Bride? Do you have oh. a favorite? Mmm. No. Really? Uh-uh. I like Inigo Montoya, and I also like, <laughs> my favorite scene, I think, in the whole movie is the scene where Billy Crystal is playing Max. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and now, I am still reading Princess Bride. I haven't gotten through it yet, and I haven't gotten to that part, but I'm interested. Unfortunately, the, the version of Princess Bride that I got from the library. I mean, I just put a hold on a copy. I wasn't paying any attention. They sent me the 30th anniversary edition, which happens to be a large, almost like coffee table type book (laughs) uh, that has some illustrations in it, not actual pictures from the movie or anything, but like hand-drawn pencil drawings of some of the characters in it. But it is so hard to hold to read. It's not super conducive to reading it in bed because it's like
1: it's like doing the gym workout in your bed it is
0: it is absolutely i do better if i'm sitting so it can like flop open on my lap (laughs) and something else is holding it up so i wish that i had had a smaller copy was yours a normal size copy
1: Yeah, it had like two introductions that I really didn't, I was like, I'm not reading all this introduction stuff. Because that was very meta too. That was when I was feeling like completely overwhelmed by November and the (laughs) readings. So I read the story, but I didn't read all the intro stuff. Because I was like, it's too much. If I don't absolutely have to read it, I'm cutting it out. And I didn't figure I absolutely had to read the introductions, because one of them, it was an anniversary introduction, so.
0: Well, they put out a 20th anniversary uh, edition, and like I said, I have the 30th anniversary edition, and they had both introductions in there. Yeah, I'll be interested to talk with
1: Tabby about the book and the movie, because most of the time, I would say, you know, probably 95% of the time, if you ask me, I would say the books are always better than the movies. But the movie version is so iconic
0: right?
1: you know, honestly, this is one of those rare occasions where I don't know that I can say that. I don't know that I can say that the book is better than the movie.
0: Well, then it also makes you wonder, had you read the book first, would you think that? Is it only because, I mean, I've seen the movie, I don't know, five or six times. I will say this. I haven't finished the book yet, so I haven't rewatched the movie yet, but- it's so ingrained in my head, you know, the movie that I feel like it would be hard for the book to overtake the movie.
1: Yeah. You know, because yeah, you know.
0: have a preconceived notion about it.
1: Right. Right. That's true. That's true.
0: I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. So this I, is an it, interesting it, case. Yeah. It's an interesting way to, to do it, you know. But ever since I've seen the movie and knew it was a book, I wanted to read the book. And so, I'm gl- I mean, I'm glad that I'm reading it. Anyway, so that's this week.
1: So my daughter and I are supposed to go to Ecuador on spring break. And so, you know, we've been given the warning, like, don't open your mouth in the shower and swallow any water and make sure you brush your teeth. You know, the water you use needs to be bottled water when you brush your teeth. So we're not set to leave until April. And I'm already having a little bit of anxiety about like, oh my gosh, you know, and like, I need to call the the international vaccine clinic down at the University of Louisville to find out what shots we need to get before we go. And so- perfect book for you to read yes yes it is and I may have to reread it before we actually go on this trip because I'm like oh Uh, I can't imagine Jeremy's been way 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 lots of places so that are more remote than where we're going to be going so
0: well uh, let's talk to him and hopefully he can calm you
1: down maybe all right let's listen to Jeremy Jeremy Hance, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thanks for having me. Jeremy, reading your book was eye-opening to me because you have been to so many places that I don't think that I even knew existed. The places that you would travel to see these unique and exotic animals was just fascinating. So when you were a child, were you a big reader? You're an environmental journalist now, but what about when you were a kid?
2: I was a big reader. I grew up in a small town in the Midwest in Minnesota. So I think reading for me was a way to discover the larger world and a way to sort of engage my imagination. I was a very imaginative kid. And then as a teenager, I started to get into like reading the classics because I wanted to figure out this adult world. And I thought, oh, you know, if I read these classics or great books, then I can figure out what it's like to be an adult, which was maybe a bit of a naive assumption. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought there would be some window into that. And I got addicted to literature. And I was an English major. And I actually did a, a master's degree in a program called the Great Books Program at uh, St. John's in Santa Fe in Mexico as well. So I've always been a big reader. Uh, I still am a big reader. And it's probably my all-time favorite thing to do is to like have a few hours and then just sit with a good book.
0: So I have to ask, I mean, there's there's a lot of children's books that feature animals. And I know that you're a huge animal lover. So were those the kind of books that you were drawn to when you were a child?
2: Yeah, I mean, I was obsessed with animals as a kid. I always was. You know, when I was really young, I had like lots of little figurines of animals. And I was drawn to the science books that would have the big pictures right, Mm. whether they were artist drawings, or um, photos and stuff. And, and I probably read those less than I just looked at them, (laughs) honestly. But, you know, again, it was a way of stirring my imagination and my interest in the bigger world. And I was always interested in the weirder the animal, the Mm -hmm. more interesting to me, I was really into strange and unique and endangered species rather than the species that were like, I grew up on a sort of a hobby farm. And so like, I had nature outside my door but I was actually a little less interested in it uh, than I was in the animals of places like the Amazon or Africa or Indonesia. Those were the animals that sort of grabbed my attention at that age.
1: Well, they have such great names. I mean, like I always think of like bandicoots. Who doesn't love a bandicoot? I'm not even entirely sure what actually is a bandicoot. I don't know, but I love it because it's got a fantastic name.
2: Yeah, names are really important. There's this trend now where scientists are trying to give The little things, the small insects, the tiny frogs, the things that we don't notice as well are these interesting names to try and get a little publicity. And I love that idea because I think that that's one way to try and get people interested in these species that we don't think about.
0: It's all about marketing, right? (laughs) It's like a a marketing (laughs) tool.
2: (laughs) Yeah, conservation is a lot about marketing. It's (laughs) kind of wild. It depends on how much we attach ourselves to the species as to how well it's doing in the wild.
1: In your memoir, and you just mentioned, you love long, novels, and long like Dostoevsky yeah. novels. And so I love the classics as well. So when you said that about reading the classics to figure out the adult world, I'm like, I still haven't figured out the adult world. And I'm well over halfway through <laughs> with my life. But I, I'm curious. So wh- what is the appeal of some of those really long tomes I, for you? You know,
2: I think it's twofold. I've also always loved fantasy. And I think part of fantasy books and long books is that you are building a world that you can get immersed in for a long period of time. And I love to be immersed. It it moves my sort of overactive brain into an area where it can just engage and enjoy and be deep into this world. And so I love those kind of books that you can spend time with, that you can watch characters really grow and change, where even if it's based on like, so like Dostoevsky or Tolstoy, you know, they're, they're writing about, you know, 19th century Russia, but coming at it from a modern reader, it feels like a world building exercise because you're reading mm-hmm. about different cultures, different people, different time, and you're engaged in these characters and their lives and the way they turn out. And it, it has that ability to ask these big, deep human questions. And I also think that, you know, one of the reasons I love to read a lot of classics is it's just there's a reason why these books survive, whether the book has been around just a few hundred years or whether it's something like Homer or the Bible, and it's been around thousands of years, you know, there's a reason why people still read it. And so I've I've always been curious, even since I was a kid, to find out what is it about these books. And even some classics that I might have read and been like, ugh, not for me, you still get something out of it. I don't think I've ever read a a book that has survived at least 100 years and not gotten something out of it that I felt like was worth the experience. And so I think that's one of the things that keeps bringing me back classic works, although I do try and mix in some more contemporary authors and genre fiction, you know, just to Cleanse the palate because it can get pretty heavy <laughs> and it can get pretty dense. But yeah, I I think I will always be someone who who gravitates towards those places. We take everything in our culture in these short bits and pieces. You know, mm. we just sort of take so much information in. But when you read a great long novel, you're you're taking things slow, and I love that. Uh, it helps me emotionally and mentally slow myself down. And it, again, it really just sort of immerses me in the place and the time and and the storytelling.
1: Well, I want to talk about your memoirs. It's, it's called Baggage Confessions of a Globe-Trotting Hypochondriac. And to borrow a phrase from Jerry Maguire, your book had me at hello, <laughs> because it blends one thing that I love to do, which is travel, with one thing that I have no choice but to deal with, which is OCD. Mm. So what inspired you to write your memoir and how long did it take you to write it? Tell us about that process.
2: Yeah. So- You know, the inspiration was slow. I I think the idea first came to me way back in 2006, when my wife and I did this trip to Peru, which is kind of how the book opened. And it was when I discovered that I had OCD was after this trip, because I was so bonkers on this trip. I was completely out of my mind. (laughs) And my wife now, now she was my fiance then, and it was really a, a trial by fire for her I think the idea of writing about that experience has been with me since that happened. Uh, I was diagnosed with depression and anxiety when I was 10. And so I grew up with mental illness and mental illness all over my family, too. My parents were mentally ill. My brothers had mental illnesses. So like my whole family was just cracked in some ways. But I spent my whole childhood trying to hide that from friends and peers and teachers and things and feeling ashamed of it. So the idea that I would ever write a book about my own personal mental health journey was initially was like, no, I don't want to do this. This is this is a bad idea. I don't want to be this vulnerable. But I think over the years as I grew up, as I had my own kid, as this idea of writing about this mental health issues in a way that would be, I think, funny and somewhat enjoyable and would combine travel and conservation, it just wouldn't let me go. And it wasn't so much that I chose to write this book as this book just freaking will not get out of my head. (laughs) There were days when I just desperately wanted to go away. But the idea just stuck. And finally, I think anyone who's written a book, you get to a point where you're just like, okay, I give in, I guess I'm doing this now. And then it was the long process of writing some and then finding an agent, finding a publisher and all those more practical things. But there was eventually a, a year or two where I just decided, you know what, I've done the journalism thing for a long time. I've always wanted to write a book. I guess my first book will be about my mental illness. Yay. <laughs>
0: you know.
2: Um, so that's kind of what happened is the more I worked on it, the more I thought that it was a story worth telling for a number of different reasons, but it, it was really that I was obsessed with it.
0: So I have a question in that your book, it's lots of different things. I mean, in some sense, it's a little bit of a travel memoir, but I really think that the travel part is the least important of the things that you're talking about it's you know it's also your memoir of mental illness but it's also about animal conservation so when you think about your book how would you categorize it
2: oh that is such a good question i mean i think it goes in the travel area of bookstores (laughs) i think that's where they put it you know this is one of the things that we ran into my agent and publisher and, and and as a writer you know I knew that I wanted to write about these travel stories around mental illness. But I also knew that as a conservation journalist, all these trips, majority, were for reporting. And so I I wanted to tell that story too. So in writing it, it was really trying to blend those three. Travel, you got wildlife, and you got mental illness. And how do you blend that and make a coherent story? And so that was really one of the challenges and maybe the, the greatest challenge of writing this was trying to blend that and then try and sell that in a way that I kind of thought naively, oh, this will appeal to three different groups, it'll be an easy sell. But in in fact, the way the publishing industry works, it likes to have a very clear definition of what a book is. Uh, And my book was a little more complicated, but I I feel really happy with how it turned out and the attempt to blend travel comedy with the more uh, mental illness stuff and then trying to get that conservation angle in there. And I just knew from the beginning that I couldn't drop any of those and make it work. It wouldn't be the book that I wanted to write.
1: We like to talk to authors about their process for writing a book. And a lot of times it's very frustrating, uh, you know, meeting deadlines or not loving a first idea and having to go back and rework it. But writing about one's mental health difficulties brings this new layer of emotional challenge to it. So can you talk to us a little bit about Having the typical writerly frustrations, but then also having the OCD and depression challenges working in tandem
2: when you were
1: trying to write your memoir.
2: Yeah, it's definitely complicated when you're writing about yourself and not about something else. You know, I had the the similar difficulties of this is my first book. I didn't know how things worked (laughs) exactly. (laughs) so you're kind of dealing with the oh deadline like i have a year to write this book oh my god i'm not as far as i need to be kind of questions but yes the the writing about the mental health stuff i think in some ways i was actually surprised that i was pretty stable and healthy during this time this is pre-pandemic when i was writing the book and i think having the project on my plate you know having this sort of large project really allowed me to focus my nervous energies into something productive which is not always the case and so i think s- In some sense, it actually kind of gave me a a nice year because I had a project that was a year long. It wasn't just an article. I could really focus. And every month I would be working on sort of a different chapter often. So I would sort of be reliving these travel experiences. I would be dreaming about them again. I would be reading through old notes and looking at old photographs to try and get the best sense of this trip. I had to talk to my wife. How vulnerable do I want to be? how detailed do I want to be? How much of the uglier side of mental illness, the gross stuff? Because there's a few scenes in the book that are kind of gross. <laughs> and and how much do I want to lean into that? And how much do I want to step back? And so there was always that question. And, you know, I think the vulnerability of that actually hit after the draft was done. There was the realization of, oh, my God, this is going to go out to people that I know. <laughs> And why didn't I think about that ahead of time? Are you sure we can't just cut, you know, again, that that sort of childhood fear of, oh, my God, I'm going to be outed as someone who's mentally ill, right? People are going to know that I'm a total freak. And that was harder, I think, after the book was done. I didn't have something to focus on. And I, I could just focus on the fact that, you know, oh, no, people are going to find out. And it was like, yeah, dude, you know, people are going to find out. You wrote a book about it. Like, <laughs> Chill out. this is a conscious decision you made, Jeremy. You only have yourself to blame. Um, so it was really hard, especially just those few months before the book came out, just to just to feel that childhood anxiety, that vulnerability creeping up again and trying to deal with that.
0: I think for readers who don't have experience with what it's like to have obsessive compulsive disorder, your book does a really great job of helping them viscerally understand what that feels like. And for someone who's experienced it either in our own lives or if you have a loved one who has OCD, your book was a big confirmation of what we've encountered. So, you know, Carrie has OCD. I have a son who has OCD. Mm. I have suffered from OCD mildly during times of extreme stress. But there seems to be a big push right now to bring mental illness out of the shadows and to talk about it more. And I'm wondering what your experience has been about other people's reaction to your book.
2: Yeah, the reaction has been wonderful. Honestly, no one has written to me being like you're a freak, you know. Um, <laughs> none of those childhood fears came true. I've gotten a lot of lovely messages from people who said that you know this was a really helpful book for them because they've struggled with mental illness. And the whole book is not like this. You know, the book is a blend of different things, and and it's meant to be an enjoyable, entertaining read. But I do try at certain points to to show my thought process. You know, if you meet me, you would not know. I I've learned to hide my mental illness so well in public that you wouldn't know. But I wanted to pull back the veil and show what the thought process is for someone who can seemingly seem pretty sane on the outside. Uh, what is going on in my head in these moments of stress, and then how it sort of descends into really ridiculous situations? And so I have gotten a lot of messages from people who've struggled with mental illness, whether it be OCD or other mental illness, saying that they really appreciated those parts and that that really reflected a kind of reality. Obviously, a subjective reality, because it's my own experience, and different people have different experiences when they suffer with mental illness, but an experience that they could connect to. And I think even more gratifying for me was parents that have reached out to me and said, you know, uh, my teenager has OCD, or my teenager has depression, or, and like, your book was so helpful in understanding what my child has been going through. And I was like, yes, that was one of my main goals, right, was to write a book that somebody with loved ones could read and say, oh, This is what is going on in their head when they're acting so irrational. Okay, this just helps me understand, love, and support them more in a new way. And then obviously for anyone with mental illness, it's so good to read something where you can feel like you're not alone. Because I think anybody who's struggled with severe mental illness for any amount of time, the loneliness is probably one of the worst parts of it. And to feel like there are other people who have struggled with this, you know, the context of the book is that, you know, it starts out with me discovering I have OCD. And then by the end, it's sort of me learning to live with OCD and still doing the travel and the job and things like that. And so there's that arc of, okay, I'm never going to get rid of the mental illness, but I've learned at least at this point, some ways to manage it.
0: The other thing I think is important is that you show that seemingly, quote unquote, normal people who you see can have mental illness and you would never know it, right? So, I mean, I think people who have never dealt with mental illness in their family or themselves, I think that they have this misconception of what mental illness is. I don't know. When I was younger, if you told me somebody was mentally ill, I'm thinking about- you know, somebody who has schizophrenia, who's homeless living on the street or something like that. I mean, I think that's a stereotype. Mm-hmm. But normal everyday people can have it. And they can be completely functioning on the outside, even though maybe they're having internal struggles on the inside. So yeah. I think that's important.
2: And I think that's so true. And that just shows that, you know, mental illness, sort of a collective word we use for many different diseases. And some can be way more severe, and some can be less severe, and some can be severe for a few years, and then, you know, abate. And like, the thing is, if you're standing in a room with five people, chances are two of them have or have struggled with severe mental illness at some point in their life, right? And one of the reasons why I was able to write this book is because there is this growing awareness and this. Other people have come before me willing to share these stories. And so I think that that allowed me a space to share mine. And I think it's so important to recognize, yes, yeah, you can have someone who has pretty severe mental illness, but still be coping and making it through day by day. Sometimes by the edge of their teeth. Um <laughs> yeah. and sometimes not. Sometimes they can be right. doing pretty good. But then like, you know, if things get bad for a few months, then they can slip. And that was one reason why too, why I wanted to write a book that was funny and entertaining, but also about mental illness. You know, there's a lot of wonderful memoirs out there, really important memoirs about this mental illness that's just crushing and despair. But I didn't want to write that book myself. That wasn't the book I, I was I felt called to write. And so I wanted to write a book about mental illness that had moments of levity, that had other things going on. So that you could tell that story in a in a different way, but still say, "Hey, I'm a I'm a pretty normal person if you meet me, but my God, if you spent three hours in my head, you know, it'd be a different story, right?"
1: Well, let's talk a little bit about that levity. Thinking about your book, so right now I'm teaching my high schoolers Willa Cather's Maya and Tanya, and we discuss how you know in that book the landscape of Nebraska is essentially a character. Mm. And in your memoir, your OCD has a name and is definitely a character. You call him Steve. And so I wanted to ask you in, in some ways it's serious, but it's also, I mean, it's also kind of funny too. And it puts a spin on it where Steve is not you, <laughs> you know, Steve is kind of like his own thing and does his own thing. So I wanted to talk about how does giving your OCD a name function for you as a means of dealing with your OCD, but also as a means of creating a story?
2: The initial birth of Steve was from one of the hundreds of therapists I've seen in my life, you know, suggested that idea of of giving your mental illness a name. So I have Steve is, is my OCD and Malachi is my depression. And, you know, I've been doing this for over a decade now, I think, calling them this. It is so therapeutic to give a little bit of a distance between my normal everyday waking self, who's a a husband and a parent and a journalist, and then this other part of me, which is the demons of mental illness. It really has helped me kind of create just that that little bit of distance. And I'll have conversations in my head with Steve or with Malachi when things are bad. (laughs) But I think when someone has a disease, when someone has cancer, there isn't the, the cultural thought of some kind of moral or some sort of failing that they did to get this, right? But when people have mental illness, you know, there's still that part of our culture that's like some, they did something wrong or, or something is deeply wrong with them when it's, it's really just they have a different brain and their neurons are firing differently and their chemistry is a little different and stress can make that worse. So I use that as a way of putting some distance between myself, my mental illness. Being able to see my thought processes from outside, being able to say, "Oh, this is Steve talking to me now. This is not Jeremy. This is not me. This is Steve saying these things." Has just allowed me to again. It's just one of the many tools I use to manage my mental illness. And then when the book came around, it became a nice writerly device. I mean, it was. It's based on reality because I have these conversations. And these are real conversations in the book. But it became also a, a nice way of showing, again, what mental illness is like, what those thought processes are like. And rather than just me being like, here's what I'm thinking now. Oh, no. <laughs> I, could, I could actually turn it into a dialogue, right? And those dialogues were super fun, actually, to write. You know, I have those conversations, especially under stressful circumstances, which when I travel... I have those conversations daily. So that was a way of me, I think, interjecting some humor into the book, but also just showing, hey, this is what it's like. You know, these are the debates that you can have with yourself. And Steve is sort of that little devil on my shoulder. who's very boring, but, you know, just keeps saying the same thing over and over again. And I'm trying to just be me and get through this experience. You know, the book is meant to be funny. People should laugh at those moments. I want people to laugh with me and at me. You know, because I do silly things. I do ridiculous things. I do things that I'm deeply ashamed of, but I'm sharing them, you know, with the idea of pulling back the veil a little bit, letting people see what it's like to live with mental illness.
0: So I think that the icing on the cake of your memoir is that a huge chunk of it is also about environmental conservation. And neither Carrie nor I had ever heard of Manga Bay prior to reading your book. So can you explain what Manga Bay is? And how you ended up becoming a columnist there?
2: Yeah, so Manga Bay is a it's an online news source, environmental news, and I started interning there in like 2008, and then I started working there 2009 full time, and that was where I got my start at, in journalism. And at the time, it was just literally just two of us, and we would write about you know wildlife. The founder of Manga Bay, Rhett Butler, has a deep love of tropical forests, and I do too. So a lot of our focus was on Global issues and forestry and, and wildlife in the tropics and such. It has since grown to a massive, there might be 80 employees now around oh, wow. the world the whole time. Yeah there's Indonesia branch with all Indonesians, there's a branch in South America. So there's different outlets now and hundreds of freelance writers who write for them. And they're publishing probably six or seven incredible articles a day. They're doing video stuff now. So it's really grown since when I started. But I got my start there as a journalism, I learned the tricks of the trade and, the, and the, the way journalism works there. And then eventually went freelance, but I still write for them a lot. You know, if, if you've never checked it out, it's an incredible source of environmental news, news about indigenous peoples, news about climate change, which is becoming obviously more and more important to be writing about and talking about news about mass extinction, wildlife, I mean, all sorts of things. And it's not all depressing. There's a lot of amazing writers and photographers and people working on this. So it's a really good place to get some alternate views about the world around us. And so much of Manga Bay focuses on other parts of the world that I think us in the U.S. are often insulated from. So you can really learn a lot by just scrolling through, finding some things that might be interesting to you. And it's, it's an incredible organization. It's still one of, one of my favorite places to write for.
1: So one of my favorite cartoons is one by David Cypress that shows two people walking. And one of them says to the other, my desire to be well informed is currently at odds with my desire to stay sane. And Writing about conservation and the impacts of habitat destruction and climate change, I would imagine, has to take a toll on you mentally. So how do you manage writing and staying informed while also trying to, you know, sort of keep your wits about you and and not despair?
2: Yeah, that is such a good question. And I think it's so timely right now. It's really hard, to be honest. It's incredibly difficult to you know, I'm, I'm writing, but I'm also reading a lot of this stuff, because that's my part of my job, right, is to just keep abreast of what's going on. Personally, I feel like there's no more important issue right now than climate change, which includes the destruction of habitats, the loss of species, obviously, ocean acidification increased, weather, all sorts of things, rising oceans. So I, I feel very called to do whatever I can to try and create more awareness about these issues. At the same time, I have to keep my mental health up. And I think, in some ways, having gone through what I went through as a kid, having been diagnosed with a mental illness when I was young, having had a family that struggled for most of my teenage life with various mental illnesses, it sort of created an armor around me where I can handle a certain amount of chaos and then still come out. And I think it also put in some kind of hope in me because I was able to come to terms with some of the things I struggle with. I've seen my, my parents were able to come to terms with what they struggle with. Maybe some of that has lented me some optimism. I mean, I'm not a doom and gloom person. I, I do believe that there is hope. I have a 10 a year old. And you know, mm-hmm. when you have a 10 year old, you, you kind of got to believe that there's going to be a future. But it is, it's hard. And, and some days are a lot harder than others. And I think the mental health crisis around climate change is only going to get worse as people sort of wake up to the direness of what's going on. My hope is that governments and officials and, and, and people with the levers of power will actually start to take this more seriously and start to push those levers. But I think we're going to see some pretty difficult times. But I also I have to do a lot of things for self-care. I meditate, I do yoga, I spend time in nature, all those kinds of things to balance the amount of bad news I often hear in, you know, a day's time. And you have to celebrate the good things. You have to be in the moment, you have to be in the present. You know, when when my kid comes home, I'm not like, oh my God, climate change. You know, (laughs) I I go into dad mode and I, I listen to what her day was and her excitement and her joy. So you have to find those places in yourself. And I feel so blessed to be in a job where I've literally been able to see some incredible sights to experience time with incredible animals, to meet people from around the world, and all working in some ways towards this goal of true kind of sustainability of of our small blue planet, and and trying to make these changes so that we can hand our children off a livable future.
1: So you talk a bit in your book about the connection between the benefits of of mental health when being exposed to the natural world. And, And you said that's something that you try to do. Are you able to get out and be in nature? And have you been able to travel at all since, I guess, the last 18 months? What has that looked like for you? Yeah,
2: I have not traveled anywhere. I had a plan to go to Indonesia to work on some stuff on Sumatran rhinos, which is one of my favorite species. And obviously, when this is all going to be the summer that COVID was, so that didn't happen. And I have a 10-year-old, and I am not going anywhere until she is fully vaccinated. That's just, that's our Mantra in our house. You know, we're not planning any major trips or anything. I I would love to. I'm working on a book now, project that will, will require travel. So my plan is to travel again down the road. I really obviously miss it. I live in Saint Paul, which is a city with a lot of green spaces. So I've really just tried to find nature where I could, whether it's just my backyard or going for a walk somewhere. Or we we did a number of times where we would go to like a, a small cabin nearby for a week or whatever, just to to get away and to, to spend time and, and and have a little closer to nature and get out of the city. But yeah, I, I think it's, it's really important for people to understand that like the research on nature and mental health is so fascinating. And it's so revolutionary. They are basically discovering that spending time in nature can add years to your life. It helps your mental health. It helps your community And we don't really know why this is, but the research, and we're talking, I'm talking hundreds of studies over a couple decades now, the research is extremely clear that we are so deeply connected to the natural world, which makes sense considering that's where we spent most of our history, right? But everything about our bodies and our minds, the natural world is a balm and is rejuvenating. It's all these things that we have disconnected from based on our culture and i do try to spend as much time as i can because i find it just personally really rejuvenating but it's also just so interesting that the research is also showing this the actual scientists are like wow we don't know why trees are so good for us but something about them you know improves our happiness and our health uh, again sort of another theme that i wanted to slide into the book because it, it it really fit with my own personal story
0: i know during covid you know during the worst part of the lockdown last year Getting out and taking walks, even though you couldn't go anywhere, you couldn't Mm. see anybody, just taking walks made me feel normal for that half hour to an hour that I was doing that walk, even if it was just in my neighborhood or a local park. That probably had something to do with COVID, but my husband and I just got back from a trip to Maine where we mainly hiked. And we like to hike anyway, but I feel like in the last probably 10 years, we haven't done as much of it as we used to. And I'm wanting to like continue that high, you know, that I got from us hiking in Maine. And so, you know, I've been looking up all kinds of hikes that are within an hour distance of our house, because I just want to continue that good feeling I got from doing it. This is
2: one of the things that's just so fascinating about the research is like, you don't have to go out into nature and like do hardcore exercise, just going for a walk can be so good for you. And it can also allow your brain a chance to, to figure out problems that they've shown that we think better when we come back from having gone for a walk. You know, we can solve issues or problems or feel even research that we should feel more empathy. You can go sit on a park bench if you're not someone who's able to walk very far. Even that can help your mood, your relationships and your health. And it's just, it's really incredible, the the power of nature.
1: For me, it's just, you know, just wandering around my yard for 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, I feel better. So, Amen
2: to that. When it's nice, uh, which for Minnesota lasts about four or five months only, but I always eat lunch in the backyard if I can and just spend a little time with the insects and the birds and the flowers and it really helps. People are listening they're wondering about ways to help their mental health. That's one of those ways to start.
0: So you talked a little bit about working on something about rhinos. Um, yeah. So I'm actually, I have a fellowship right now with uh,
2: MIT, the Knight Science Journalism Fellowship. So I'm spending the next four months basically writing a, a new nonfiction book proposal. And this one is focused on the story of the Sumatran rhino, which is this really bizarre species. It's not related very closely to any other rhinos. It's about 25 million years off from them. It's small. It's hairy. I mean, when I say small, it's, it's still huge. It's a rhino, but it's the smallest of the world's rhinos. They are constantly vocalizing. They, they make these dolphin-like squeaks and noises and songs all the time. And I've been so blessed to spend some time with them. So I'm basically working on a book idea that would sort of focus on them as a theme to also explore extinction and other species and sort of our relationship to the world. And, but really focusing on uh, their story. They're probably the most endangered large mammal on land on the planet. So it's a really vital species and and one I've just fallen in love with. So it's really exciting to be that. I will hopefully be traveling to Indonesia where, where the last populations are. There's so many places I'd like to go. I'd love to go to Mongolia. I'd, I'd love to get back to the Amazon. I'd love to get back to Sub-Saharan Africa. I'd love to go to Madagascar. I'd love to go to some Pacific islands. I could go on and on. Russia's on the top of my list because I love the dead white Russian authors, apparently (laughs) all all those old, all those old dead dudes that just read those really long books. Like I'd love to go see that. So there's a lot of places still on my list. I think part of the pandemic was feeling so grateful for all the places I've been able to go. I'm excited to do it again for for work, but we'll we'll see. I think Indonesia will be the next place.
1: Well, Jeremy, it has been awesome learning more about you and your book. And we would recommend that everybody check it out. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading.
0: We are back with Jeremy Hans and with Carrie Carrie, what are you reading? You're beating me by like 30 books this year. it's <laughs> I've given up. Well,
1: the book I'm going to talk about was actually a lovely audiobook. It's called The Night Diary by Vera Hiranandani. And it is the story of a girl named Nisha. It is written as letters to her mother, and her mother has died. Her mother died right after giving birth to Nisha and her brother. And so this book is set in 1947, in the time when the British have colonized India, and so they are giving up their role in the country. And so reading this, it provided me with a lot of history that I sort of knew, but didn't really know. India at one time had been a bigger country. And then when the British left, they split India into Pakistan and India as we know it now. And what happened was the Hindus who were in the section that is now Pakistan had to move to India and the Muslims who were in the part that we now know as India had to move to Pakistan. And this was very dangerous and uh, a lot of people died and there was violence. And so reading this book, even though it was a historical fiction book, I felt like it did a really nice job of making me more aware of this time period. So Nisha and her father's a doctor and her father is Hindu and her mother was Muslim. And so even though her mom is deceased, you know, she's very confused because she's like, I'm both. So where do I go? What do I do? Like, even if we move to where everybody's a Hindu, there's a half of me is Muslim. It was touching. It was interesting. It was suspenseful. It's a, it's a book for, you know, a middle grade student. I really, really... Enjoyed it. And at the end, there is information from the author. So the author doesn't narrate it, but at the end, she does come on and she talks about her own father's experience. He had to walk from one place to another. And so, like in the fictionalized account, Nisha and her family have to walk like 63 miles and they essentially run out of water. And it, you know, it, it gets to the point where it sounds pretty dire. So the author's father's experience wasn't like that, but she took inspiration from what he went through. So if you're like me, and you really don't know much about that time period, and you're interested in, you know, kind of dipping your toes in it through some historical fiction, I think this would be an excellent way to do that. Highly recommend that book. How'd you hear about it? uh, well, you know, I chose it based on how short it was. I was like, well, this is only like seven hours or something. I'm like, sounds good to me. But it was a a Newbery honor book, I believe. I try to keep tabs on those uh, as much as I can. Highly recommend. All right, Jeremy, what long Russian reader (laughs) have you been working
2: on? First of all, I'm having this incredible reading experience right now. With my daughter. I've been reading to my daughter since she was little. It's something that really exciting that we share. But I finally convinced her to let me read her Lord of the Rings. Yes! Yes, right? I've read her The Hobbit twice, and she feels really bad for Gollum. And she was like, I don't know if I can handle it. I'm like, <laughs> you know what, baby? The Gollum doesn't show up till the second book very much. She's very sensitive. And, and mm. you know, we're very aware of this. So let's just try the first book and see. And I, my, my goal is, you know, by the end of the first book, she's not going to be able to stop. So she'll just have to learn to deal with the Gollum, which is a good exercise in empathy anyway. And so we've started reading it. We're just a couple chapters in. But what we do is we turn off all the lights, except for a light for me to read by. We put on some candles. Usually it's just me and my daughter, but my wife is now listening too. And we all just sit in our living room and I get to read for like a half hour every night, you know, about Frodo and the rain and Gandalf and all the amazing stuff. And, you know, and she has no idea what's coming. You know, oh, she's never man. seen the movies. Oh. So, as a father who loves books, it's like the perfect reading experience. Um, that is awesome. That is yeah.
0: pretty cool, and they're long books. So, all three books
2: together, it's about a thousand pages. Yeah.
0: But that sounds like an incredible experience for your family to do it like that. That's really yeah.
2: Cool. It's been really neat. I want to plug another book real quick, just something less known. Uh, so, as as a person who's written a travel book, I wanted to just say, if people love travel books, check out Patrick Lee Fermer. He was this travel writer who at the age of 17, walked from London to Istanbul, you know, across all of Central and Eastern Europe. And, you know, he was just a young man. It's the 1930s. So he's walking through Germany as Hitler's just starting to rise. And it's the end of the aristocracy. So he's seeing the aristocracy start to come down. And but he's such a fantastic writer his descriptions, he can spend three or four pages on a single cathedral. And you would think he would get bored, but his writing is so immaculately beautiful that you're just entranced. So if someone's looking for a book that delves into travel but also the history of, of Europe and the history of the 20th century, highly recommend that's a three-part book. The first one is called The Time of Gifts and it's a wonderful, wonderful one of the best writers I've ever, I've ever read.
0: Wow. Oh, that sounds totally up my alley. Although I need to ask because I know how you really like long books. Is this like a thousand page book?
2: No, no. The first, okay. the first book is probably like two, three hundred pages.
0: <laughs> oh, OK. Good. Um, okay,
2: Yeah. And then, and like I said, it's it's three different books. Just reading the first one gives you the, the sense of what he's doing. In. And it's also like a coming of age story because he's just like a 17 year old, brilliant young man who got kicked out of school because he was too wild. And he's just walking across Europe. Meeting all sorts of interesting characters and having all these wild adventures. You know, and and if you visit Europe today, it's so different from what he describes because this is before shopping malls and before sort of mass consumerism. And, you know, just on the edge of World War II, it's just a completely different world. So it's it's a splendid, splendid read.
1: So I love to hear about somebody that I'm like, I have never heard of this person. I must investigate immediately. So that's that's awesome.
2: Yeah, i had never heard of him until I worked in a bookstore in New York City in my 20s. And it was someone just recommended it to me. And I've read pretty much everything he's written since then. So
0: that is fantastic.
2: All right.
1: Patrick Lee Firmer. Is that right? Patrick Lee Firmer. Yep. Well, Amy, what's going on?
0: This book that I'm going to talk about today, it's a memoir, and I I love to read memoirs. It's called Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come, An Introvert's Year of Living Dangerously by Jessica Pan. And this was published in 2019. And Jessica Pan is an American-born journalist who, upon marrying a Brit moves to London, and she's not able to take a job immediately. And so she finds herself very lonely. And she's a self-described shy introvert, or shintrovert, as she coins it, who has friends, but all of them live in other places. And she finds London an incredibly hard place to make friends. And as an introvert, she appreciates alone time and a quiet life, but she finds herself unhappy and wonders what it would be like to be more of an extrovert. So Jessica decides to take a year and push herself to live as an extrovert and see how it would change her. So she does things like pushing herself to talk to strangers. She takes improv comedy classes. She goes on friend dates through a service that's sort of like Bumble, but for best friends. Uh, She throws a dinner party and she travels solo. And along the way, she finds people to serve as guides or Sherpas, if you will, to help guide her through each of these challenges. So after I read the book, I would say she isn't just an introvert. She also has some social anxiety. And so I think that there is a difference between those two things. Several of the experiences that she pushed herself to do, I don't think would come naturally to an extrovert either, like um, doing stand-up comedy or public speaking. I think there are plenty of extroverts who don't like speaking in front of people. Um, But even though I have a little bit of a disagreement with her on the definition of an introvert, I don't think it really matters for this book because the point of it is really about pushing yourself outside your comfort zone to do things that maybe scare you or intimidate you. Now, I don't mean that you should jump out of a plane or snake handle because it scares you. I think that we're talking about something else. For this author, when she tried many of these activities, she wasn't always successful. And she discovered things about herself what would and wouldn't work for her. But I think the biggest thing that she came away with or what I came away with as a reader, was that the things that she was scared to do, even if they didn't go well, it didn't kill her. She lived through it and she came out the other side. And she gained skills that she, by the end of the book, said made her a gregarious introvert with more confidence to meet people and make friends. And so I just also want to make clear that the author is not saying that there's anything wrong with being an introvert or that there's anything inherently better about being an extrovert. But she found herself in an unhealthy place where her social anxiety and her version were making her miserable and infecting her everyday life. And I think that's the difference. So on the flip side, I personally have known extroverts who don't take time to have quiet moments to process what's going on in their own lives, and they suffer because of it. So ultimately, I think you can take from this book, not so much about introversion versus extroversion, but really what fears in your life are holding you back from being a happier and more confident person. And I feel like I'm making this sound like a self-help book. Uh, It's more of a humorous memoir, but there are definitely some self-help aspects to it that if you as a reader ask yourself what fear you should conquer. And I listened to this on audio and the author narrates it. And I really appreciated her self-deprecating and her light writing style. And this is the perfect kind of audio book for me because it was like listening to a friend tell a story and I gave it four and a half stars and I recommend it.
1: I, I'm glad you said she's not down on introverts.
0: No, it, she's not. Uh, I think that that she had kind of closed herself off, and you know, I think everybody needs some sort of social contact, oh, and she sure. just really didn't have a social structure in London, and I guess didn't feel like she had the skills that she needed to be better at making friends, and so I think that that's how it started. But
1: all right, very, very good. Cool. All right. Well, we are going to take another short break. And when we come back, Jeremy's going to answer his three about me. We are back with Jeremy. Are you ready for your questions? I
2: am ready.
1: <laughs> okay. Question number one You have traveled around the world and seen some of the most amazing scenery and unusual animals. When you are at home, what are some ways you get out into nature? And do you have animals that you specifically look for?
2: Yeah, I, I do. You know, even since I was a kid, I really enjoyed the exotic. But obviously, as you get older, you come to appreciate the close things as well. There's a couple parks just near my house that I love to walk in. There's one that it's an oak grove. It's, it's a recreated landscape that used to be in the in the area, and so that's a beautiful place to go. In Minnesota, in general, I think the the best place for nature is the Boundary Water Canoe Area, which is a series of a large area of of lakes up in the northern uh, near the Canadian border, and there's no motorboats allowed, so people just go and canoe. And you know, it's a place where you can, if you're really lucky, see moose. But I've, I've grown to love just local birds. The other day, for example, I was just out on a walk and I saw a woodpecker just like on the ground drinking out of a puddle. Hmm. And I don't think I've ever seen that before. And, you know, that's one of the amazing things. Like I was literally in the middle of the city, but it's the largest species in Minnesota. So it's a, it was a big bird just drinking out of this puddle and the silhouette and was like, oh, there's a dinosaur. Like it was just, <laughs> it was such a cool little moment. And I've never seen that before. So, you know... I think that anywhere you live, if you can find places near you with that little bit of green space, and if you can start to notice those small things, the insects, the birds, the trees, it can really lead for a richer experience in your life. And, and getting to know your local flora and fauna, uh, even if you're like me and, you, and you, you're really more attracted to the tropics <laughs> in the long run.
0: Well, my husband and I have been completely nerding out. I mentioned that we went to Maine and we had dinner at a restaurant, ate outside, but we were sitting next to this couple and we just kind of struck up a conversation with them. And they were doing a lot of hiking as well. And one of them told us about this app called Seek and another corresponding app called iNaturalist. And you can link them together. And basically, you can, with the app, take a picture with your phone of different plants, different animals, insects, whatever, and it will tell you what it is or or give you a suggestion of what it is. And then if you link it to the iNaturalist, other people can look at it and say, yes, that's what that is. And then it goes into their big database so they can see where species are being spotted all over the country, all over the world. Well, my husband and I completely nerded out about this. And on our like our last day, we were at a salt marsh outside of Portland, Maine. I mean, we did walk, but I mean, we were just taking pictures of all kinds of things, like nerding out over things that normally we would have just walked past. Yeah. But we wanted to see what it was. And my husband is so obsessed. He took a picture of a centipede he saw in our house last night, and it said, said, common centipede or something. But I mean, it was insane.
2: (laughs) Centipedes are so cool. They're They're like little dragons. Yeah
0: so i have a family of males who love to play role-playing games i hear that you also like to play role-playing games so which ones are your favorites and when did you start playing these so i started late i got into it probably maybe eight
2: nine years ago but when i was a kid i knew about dungeons and dragons and i had i had a couple books i had no idea how it was played right and I had no one to play with me that I knew of because it, but I had, I had some friends that I met later in my life who had played it when they were teens and got me into it. And I, yeah, I've, I've fallen down the rabbit hole because it's like <laughs> a wonderful system. And I, I primarily have played Dungeons and Dragons. There are some other ones I've tried. It's a great way of sort of communal storytelling. I used to be in theater when I was in high school. So it stretches sort of the acting muscles and it stretches the storytelling. And then of course, kind of touches on the fantasy stuff, which I absolutely love. And it, you know, it's something that I've introduced to my child and now she's obsessed with it. And, and so
0: she'll play with you?
2: Yeah, I've run games with her and my wife during COVID. I also have run some games with her and some friends when it wasn't COVID. I'm in like two or three different games at the moment. It's a really wonderful escape. The adults have a really hard time with pure imagination, right? When my kid was little and be like, let's play zoo. And I'd be like, oh my God, I'm so bored within three seconds, right? (laughs) Like we're just being a giraffe and we're drinking water. But what D&D allows is it has, you know, this set of rules and this world building that allows you to, to have some structure, but then within that structure to go wild. And so for whatever reason, it allows me to feel like I'm a little kid again, in some adventure world, playing this fantasy and, it's just been such a, a joy and a delight and a really fun way to try something new and then introduce my daughter to things like, how do you role play a character? You know, Is this a decision that you would make or is this a decision that your character would make? How do you plan? How do you make a strategy to take on this challenge or that challenge? And then just learning math and reading and all these other things that sort of go into this game. Uh, it's been really,
0: really fun as a family to do that. That is the best explanation of Dungeons and Dragons I have ever heard. All
1: right. Question number three. What is something, a hobby, a habit, an entertainment activity like watching Ted Lasso or whatever that you have taken up in the 18 months of COVID? My husband, for example, has taken up drinking a little glass of bourbon every night. Not sure how (laughs) I feel about that habit.
2: You know, if it's a little glass, that sounds pretty good. (laughs) (laughs) Right. I think we've all drank a little more than we probably should have over the last 18 months. Uh, you know, this is hard because when COVID happened, we pulled my daughter out of school and I I homeschooled her last year. So, so much of COVID was about being a full-time parent and a full-time dad and a teacher. And I felt like I lost my ability to have me time and alone time and habits. So, she started back in school this fall. And so, I'm sort of now trying to rediscover like, oh, what are some things that we can be doing? And so, we've been doing more puzzles which I think, you know, when I was a kid, my grandpa used to do these giant puzzles. And I thought, my God, that's like the most old person thing I can think of. And the <laughs> most boring, like you're literally trying to put a picture back together that you already have a picture of. What is the point? <laughs> but then I discovered with like my OCD and my wife loves it too, is when you find the pieces that fit, there's a little happiness in your brain, your, whatever your neurons shoot together and you're like, you get a little spark of, of accomplishment. And so I think that for someone with, you know, for me with OCD, it's a great way to sort of focus my brain energies and get to be obsessive, but not in a negative way (laughs) and put this damn, excuse my language, puzzles (laughs) together, you know, sometimes it can get a little frustrating, but like there's... (laughs) You, you can go to bed every night and you're like, I accomplished something today. <laughs> I found two or three pieces that I found the match to. And, you know, the day wasn't, uh, you know, so that's been something that we've been enjoying as a family, I think. And that in Lord of the Rings, it definitely shows my age that I enjoy it, though, because my daughter's <laughs> like, that is so lame. <laughs> like, you <know. laughs> you're so lame, Dad. <laughs>
1: All right. Well, Jeremy, it has been so great chatting with you. Thanks again for taking time out of your afternoon to speak with us. We really appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me. This has been a wonderful conversation.
0: Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode in your podcast player. We have a new updated website that has some great new features, including listener book recommendations and pictures of our guest pets. So come by and take a look. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.